0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for a couple of years now, but for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Gary Fabian Miller. Now, Gary is a renowned artist and photographer who doesn't use a camera in his practice, Instead, he works in his darkroom and relies on a combination of light and a material called ciber-chrome paper, using exposures that can last between 1 to 20 hours. His extraordinary abstract pieces are inspired by nature and the things he sees on his walks around his home in Dartmoor. More recently, he's branched out, working in collaboration with the Dovecot Tapestry Studio in Edinburgh, on a series of rugs and tapestries, as well as cellist Oliver Coates and poet Alice Oswald on a film project. Gary's work has been exhibited all over the globe with pieces held in an array of public and private collections, including MoMA in New York, the Sir Elton John Collection and the V&A in London. In 2017, he was awarded an Honorary Fellowship of the Royal Photographic Society. Meanwhile, his latest book, and there have been many, is entitled Blaze and features a foreword from an old friend of the show, Edmund Duval. Gary, are you there? I'm there. Grant, hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Um... Was that all reasonably accurate? Uh, yeah, I think broadly. Good, good. <laughs> um, let's start off by maybe telling me where you are. Where are you currently?
1: I'm currently where I always am, which is uh, at my home on Dartmoor. And I'm looking out the window at my garden and a large hornbeam hedge, which you know, we're at about 1,100 feet. Uh, so things are slow to come into leaf. And this hornbeam hedge is coming into leaf. And it's a beautiful day
0: and all looks good. Good, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, maybe for the listeners, could you tell us a bit about your studio and how it is you work? My studio and how it is I work, right. Gosh, so my kind
1: of, the pattern of my day, the way I work has broadly always been the same. So I walk in the mornings first thing, as close to sunrise as the time of year allows. And then I come back and I go to my studio in which is also the dark room. Mm. And it used to have a fairly clear path and I would go into the dark room and start trying to make pictures, and then it would get to lunchtime, and I would stop. And I've I've lived here for thirty, thirty two years, and in the early years, I would tend to spend the afternoon gardening, uh, mm. making a garden. But that's not so much the case now. So so the afternoons tend to be taken up with kind of dealing with the
0: art world. Dealing with the art world, what does that entail?
1: Dealing with the art world, that means talking to dealers, uh, talking to people you're working with on the making of pictures, all the business of being an artist. And then I tend to return to the studio and look at the pictures, which have been made in the morning because they have to dry. So they're drying. And then I would go and look at them, bring them out of the dark room into the studio, put them on the wall and see what happened. And then I would stop, uh, have a cup of tea, a piece of cake, sit in a deck chair, or by a fire if it's the winter. Think about it, um, and then depending on the time of year, I'd get ready to go out again for another walk as close to the sunset as possible. So broadly, you know, that's been the pattern for for, for decades.
0: For the listeners, could you describe your studio setup? I've had a number of studio setups. The one I have now I've had since
1: ninety seven. I've got a large studio gallery light space. It's extremely white. Someone visiting it to write about it described it as the brightest room in southwest England. And I think perhaps it is on a, on a sunny day. So it's, it's, it's like walking into a volume of white light mm. and then the pictures go onto the wall in this white space. So they have to kind of be seen in the world for the first time in a very, very bright, luminous place. And then contained in the studio through a, a couple of kind of doors which create a light trap is the dark room. And the dark room is the opposite of the studio so the the dark room is a small space which you know has accumulated all the stuff which accumulate in a working space so if you think of all of the potter's workshops you've been to mm. other maker spaces all that stuff which accumulates over 23 25 years fills up my dark room and so in this space which is the opposite of the studio which is a bit like going into an underground space you know total absence of light except electric light to work out how you're going to make pictures
0: is the dark room yeah gary it sounds like you could work unaffected by this virus that the rest of us have been coping with for the past 13 months or whatever
1: yeah i've chosen to kind of build a career where i chose to take myself away from the art world um to live uh and to try and make the work i wanted to make in the place i needed to be to make it, and then kind of navigate my place into the art world as a kind of absent physical figure. And I suppose I've always done that. Uh, At the beginning, I lived close to Bristol, so that was close to a centre of activity. Then I took myself to Lincolnshire, which was, you know, fairly much on the edge, I guess. And then I brought myself to Dartmoor, So kind of in a year, I might only ever get to London four times, perhaps, Mm. and really don't venture far from Dartmoor, you know, possibly I might visit Exeter. Uh, So I live a fairly enclosed life, and, and that's what I've chosen. But from that place, I have to engage with the art world to make it all possible. And so I suppose if you can't travel, which is what you're kind of alluding to, or go out into the world, the kind of life I've built up has been one which tried to avoid that being part of my life. Mm. So it hasn't been such a difficult thing in the way that you're suggesting. And I guess I think my wife and I have probably thought over the last year that there's been this kind of desire for people to be here living this kind of life. But then we say to ourselves, yeah, but 32 years living this life on Dartmoor is pretty tough. Mm. And I don't know how many people would want to be here through all the things we've had to be, you you know, to live here is tough you know, just navigating day-to-day life. So it's wonderful when people have that kind of idea and it makes total sense when there's a pandemic that you're here and we've obviously been able to survive in a much... Uh, well, it's been much easier for us to adapt to the situation here and be grateful for the life we chose to make here and this strange situation where this seems to be the right place to be because the art world is closed down.
0: When you say tough, tough in terms of the environment...
1: It tough in terms of weather, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, just, you know, just navigating life in a fairly tough rural environment. Mm. So if you take living on an island, a remote island is the toughest example, there's grades of toughness, and so this is nowhere near, near that. But it's, you know, it's, it's not the kind of life most people choose if they want a fairly straightforward life.
0: Sure, sure. Well, look, really, to get to grips with your practice, it's fundamental to understand your process. You work with light, some chemicals, a few basic tools, and Cibachrome paper. I mean, could you describe that process for us?
1: Right, let's see. So Cibachrome. we probably should establish what it is.
0: Yeah, let's start with the paper.
1: Yeah, yeah. So because I knew you'd want to know things like this, I had to, <laughs> I had to kind of uh, figure out what the answers to these questions were. So what's important to understand is I've only ever used this paper since 1976. So my whole understanding of photography post um, kind of eighteen nineteen is one material. Mm. And, and so the reason I chose that material was because in the mid 70s, when there really wasn't colour photography, as people understand it now, one of the reasons there wasn't was because there was little confidence in colour materials. And so I think probably most photography was kind of commercial practice in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, you know, when I was a teenager. Mm. And so photography, if it was viewed as, as fine art, was broadly influenced by what was happening in America, I guess. And so there was a group of people who were using transparency film to shoot images with a camera. And the most stable colour material to print from transparency was this material called Cibachrome, which created the most perfect colour palette of any colour material. So having decided I wanted to make colour pictures, I would make images on transparency film and then chose to print on Cibachrome, there really wasn't anything else. Mm. So I began with this material, and um, it was made in Switzerland. Um, One factory in Switzerland made it, began in 1963, and it's described as a die destruction print. So all the dyes are embedded into the surface of the paper, and then the color palette of light that falls onto the paper activates these dyes so that's the way the image appears on the surface and then it goes through a processing cycle where one of the chemicals the bleach destroys the dyes that have been used and activated during the exposure and at the end of the processing when you pull the image out of the drum and see it for the first time that's what remains on the paper so, so that's briefly the way the material works.
0: Right. So how do you use it?
1: So in those early days, I would use it like most people did. I would expose a transparency in a camera and then it would be processed and I, it would come back to me and I'd go into a dark room, and to begin with learn how to print a picture using this material Cibachrome because mm. there weren't so many people using it who you could learn from. So I would have taught myself how to do that. And for a period of years, I worked in that way. And then I reached a point in the mid 80s when I decided I, you know, I mean, you can ask me about this, but I decided the camera was not the camera was the problem. And really, what I was interested in was the material mm. and the light. And so I had to conceive or consider that there could be a world where a camera was absent and you could work directly with light and this light sensitive material with this remarkable characteristic to make images appear. And so then that's the practice which kind of began around the winter of eighty four, eighty-five.
0: Right. And so how does that work? What do you do when you get in the dark room?
1: Right. Okay. Well so then that's like any practice that evolves over over decades. Uh so in those early days, the key thing to understand is so one day I decide that the truth of photography is the materials, the light sensitive materials that we invented and how you engage with light to work with that material. And through a frustration with the tool, which is what the camera is, in being able to build a direct relationship to the beam of light and the material, I had to conceive there was a way you could make images appear without it. So what's so important is to understand that as you evolve, I could have only evolved in this way if I had been working with a transparency film on which an image existed, which I could then print in the head of a colour enlarger just like conventional photography, onto a piece of paper. So over a summer, I began to realise through various experiments that instead of trying to photograph the thing, which in that case was I was trying to make pictures which were about the sun pulling plants out of the earth in fields of wheat primarily, and I was making complicated exposures with a camera about this, and they were not succeeding. So... I thought, well, what I have to do is take the leaf of the wheat and take that to the larger and place it in the carrier, and that becomes a transparency. Uh, then I print from that, and an image should appear. So that's the kind of idea. And so I do that, and it happens. And so there's like um, a sense of revelation and wonder because you've found out that that's a possibility. Um, and so then that was the beginning of what then became my practice and continues to be so. So for the first few years, all of my work was based on working with plants. Right.
0: Because that was the only known intermediary. So that's how it begins. So for somebody who is a bit of a novice when it comes to this kind of thing, yeah. my understanding is you bring the object, the plant or whatever, yeah, put it into the photographic enlarger, yeah. you shine light through it, yeah. it hits the paper and then gets exposed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's how we begin. Yeah. So, the beauty of that is the simplicity of it. Also, the beauty of it is that's the beginning of photography. Mm. So, that's saying that to understand the material, I had to go back to the first exposures, which were the Fox Talbot plant exposures, and then reconsider what photography might be if a camera hadn't come along. Mm. So, all of those cultural things would have fed the desire to try and make images in this way. But the primary desire was for me to have a direct relationship to a plant and its relationship to the sun. And and so those two things kind of run in parallel when I find I can do that. Yeah, yeah. But Fox Talbot wasn't doing that. You know, he was placing the plant directly onto the paper with a sheet of glass on top of it and putting it out into the sunlight and an exposure would be made. I, you know, by the time I'm active, the enlarger has become the tool which relates to the camera. So the significant thing that I did was to choose to place the plant material into the head of the enlarger as if it was an already created negative or transparency from which we make an image. But for that relationship to photography, I wonder if I'd ever worked in the way that I did. So to have started in photography, a camera-based medium at that point in my life, I had to be there to then put it away and understand that the materials were the transparency in this case at that moment, and the piece of paper and the beam of light and the chemistry, and the camera was no longer needed, so I spent probably eighty five to to kind of five years working in that way, and over five years, which was determined by real time, so five years meant five springs, five summers, five autumns, five winters. I could conceive of a way to make pictures in this way, so for example, in the first spring. I realised that I could work with late April, May, a tree coming into leaf and then going through a photosynthesis cycle and the sun producing the colour palette green on that tree. And by gathering those leaves in real time, you know, each day, I could begin to show what happened to that tree across 20 days, 30 days until it fully turned dark green from a pale pink, fleshy green. So... Uh, In the first spring, I would make a kind of multi print pinch picture like that.
0: And then that moment would pass, and I'd have to wait a whole nother year. You'd have to wait for another spring to come before you could start making that kind of work again, which is really interesting. And the the patience required must be immense, Gary.
1: Uh, Well, it's all fed by an energy, isn't it? Because, you know, I've conceived of how to make art like this, pictures like this. And then you have to figure out, well, what do you do with this, Mm. you know, this method and these materials? So. Uh, It means, you know, you're making these pictures learning as you make them, you don't have an example to look to, and then the moment passes, and then you go into the next season, and you carry all of that kind of idea and energy with you. Uh, But then you know that these ideas all just have to wait. You know, it seems strange that for five years, you could only be working with a beam of light, plant material a paper in a chemistry, but it was, you know, that was just the way the world is. And and you just had to conform and become part of that cycle of activity.
0: Could we talk a bit about the Cibachrome? Yeah. Because in 2012, it was announced that it would no longer be made. Yeah. So in other words, I'm presuming that you're running out of this material. Yes.
1: By 2005, there aren't many people using this material. Mm. Um, So already the material which is just over 40 years old So I was born in 57, so the material is five years after I was born. It came into the world, and by 2005, it's being discussed that it's going to end. So this small group of people that are using it, which is why it's going to end, begin to know that their material may leave the world, and that caused my work to change in 2005. But in 2012, that's when the factory ran the final production of paper and chemistry. So, so what
0: did you do? Did you just buy loads of it or how does that work?
1: Yeah. So, it's all rumors, isn't it? In the <laughs> sense that at that point in 2012, my memory is that a, a group of people, you know, I don't know who these people were. I mean, I, I know of about four or five people were contacted by the factory to say, you know, we're closing down and this is your last chance to order these materials and then it will be gone. Um, so in my case, you know, one had to imagine how much of this material you would use over a period of time it has a life cycle so it's not as if you could buy it and stockpile it and it would see you to the end of your life right because it it would no longer work you know it has a date connected to its life cycle so you could take a risk that it might still be active five ten years after that date but that would be a risk you'd have to make a judgment Mm. so i bought what seemed a large amount of materials and you know it was a bit protracted but they eventually arrived you had these materials you worked with them, and they went beyond their life cycle dates, and you continued to work with them. But then the calculations you'd made you know, weren't accurate, so you were beginning to run out of certain paper or the different combinations of chemistry. And so you could foresee you weren't going to make all the prints that you potentially could because the chemistry was becoming... Uh, There wasn't enough chemistry, and the chemistry is the most volatile, unpredictable
0: element when it goes beyond its life cycle. It must be a very curious sensation, knowing that your craft is being taken away from you and there's nothing you can do about it. I know historic England have come in to shoot your dark room. That must be quite unnerving, I imagine. Does it feel Uh, like the end of days?
1: It is the end of days. I mean, it is the end days. The days are almost over, but the end days last a long time. That's what's amazing, when you enter the end days. So the end days have gone on for a number of years. If we say 2012, it's now 2021. And pretty much the dark room's closed. I have some materials, but for various reasons, the dark room probably is closed. So, you know, if I'd spoken to you in November, it would have been still alive and might have continued a bit longer. But towards the end, what happened, which is kind of quite interesting, I think, is then you get an underground. So you have me, perhaps nine, ten people left who want these materials. And so you're trying to get connected to people that have stopped using this material right and they just got
0: it abandoned somewhere so it's like a black market for a black market
1: paper. like uh, drug dealers uh <laughs> uh is it's is what it became at the end uh it felt like you know meeting people at lockups and and such like so there was a very interesting period are they charging you
0: loads and loads of money for it in that case
1: yeah 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 obviously it's a massive you know some people are some people aren't And then what happened towards the end, right towards the end, when there was just a few of us left, there begins to be a kind of looking out for each other, you know, hearing that someone in uh, Switzerland's got some materials or someone in a council house in uh, Honiton in his garage has got some. Really? And he knows that this guy... Photography is an amazing material, and 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 what needs to be understood about photography is there's kind of art world area of photography, but then there's what is most photography, which is amateur photography, and that darkroom photography had professional practice, but it was an amateur practice, you know, of camera clubs, enthusiasts, hobbyists. And they would keep the industry going. There would be people who, you know, who worked across all kinds of photographic materials, like car enthusiasts or something. And so you would hear through my suppliers, professional suppliers, of a guy who's got this, you know, this darkroom, which has reached the end of its days. And in there is
0: some of this material. So you were getting tip-offs?
1: Yeah, tip-offs, yeah. And so you'd turn up at this guy's house, and it, there was his garage full of this stuff, which nobody wants. It's just going to scrap metal dealers. All his room is being broken up. You know, all the machinery, the equipment, the the enlargers. The chemistry is a thing nobody wants. You know, it's a
0: problem. They can't dispose of it. It's dangerous. The, the chemistry is bleaches, presumably. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very dangerous material. Superchrome uh, is, yeah. Photographic rooms are dangerous places. So the fact that they're over... Which they are really is part of making sense of dark rooms will be understanding what dangerous places they were. They were basically Victorian laboratories and they didn't evolve much from that. You know, because my dark room is ending and it's the last example of a certain kind of dark room, you know, people begin to understand that these cultural sites are gone and there's a sadness, but also curiosity and a sense of something is over and people are only beginning to realize it. But in parallel to that, And the lockdown, which you asked about earlier, is a really interesting example of it. There's a whole new group of people all across the world who want to work in dark rooms, broadly younger people. And they're developing a practice which often takes the beginning of photography and the early chemical systems that were used, but also plant-based developing systems, you know, chemistry made from seaweed other plants early photographic processes which were plant based cyanotypes so would be the most well-known example and in the pandemic you know cyanotypes was like kind of knitting or something like that all over the world people were making cyanotypes
0: so we think the dark room is undergoing a revival
1: well no it's it's extinct i'd say almost but if it survives it will be because of a different generation of people who are going back to the beginning and considering the chemistry and the papers which they make to make exposures exist in the world and they're broadly going to satisfy a whole kind of environmental criteria which was abandoned by photography and never part of photography really so from my point of view if dark rooms continue they're going to be a kind of safe place right and a place which almost is a bit like well like a craft in the sense these people make their own chemistry Uh, broadly they have papers which they coat with the chemistry which they either buy and mix with stuff they generate from plant materials it's almost right back to the beginnings of photography yeah and the problem they all have is stability and maintaining images so that they don't disappear from the world which is how can you ever make an image permanent yeah and that now will be the problem is how do these images exist in the world perhaps this generation of people will think Pictures only have a life, you know, yeah. and, and we make them and in 10 years
0: they're gone and they're a memory. That's fascinating. Can we talk about your background, Gary? Because you were something of a child prodigy. Your parents ran a photographic business in Bristol and you were in the dark room helping them at the age of 13. Was it inevitable you'd become a photographer?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I find this difficult, but my view is there's a, like a whole group of people that, and it probably is the same now, isn't it? Yeah, it must be. I mean, we can think of people we probably know Like a potter whose
0: son becomes a potter.
1: So a good example would be Clive Bowen and Dylan Bowen. Yeah, yeah. So this is like an established way trade and craft works.
0: Well, see, my parents are both, in fact, all my family, they're all medics. And I'm very much the black sheep. Right. There's a a little branch of historians, which I got a degree in history. Yeah. But otherwise, healers and carers, all of them, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, But yes,
1: yeah. yes. Yeah, so so my feeling was, if my family had had a kind of carpentry business, mm. just in the nature of being a child, you get dumped in these businesses, don't you? In the sense of childcare and summer holidays and stuff, and you're just in the workshop, you know, because that's where you can be while they work. So my exposures to dark rooms was that I always viewed it as being somewhat like that, um, that it was a place where I had to be
0: when school was not functioning. Yeah, dangerous place to be for a child. By the Dang-
1: Yeah, but I didn't know that but a magical place to be. Yeah. So that meant that I was seeing incredibly mundane images, you know, kind of social functions, weddings, those kinds of things being photographed, which I wasn't particularly seeing that. But what I was seeing was these images come into the world in a dark room, which is a kind of magic and alchemy. And when you see that happen in a very ordinary space, it's something very profound. And so
0: as a young person, I was aware I was in a space where something very special was happening. It's interesting because you described that space as ordinary, but it had a poetic past, I believe. William and Dorothy Wordsworth slept there. Am Am I right in saying that?
1: Oh, isn't that interesting? Where did you get that from, Grant? Well,
0: I do a bit of research, Gary. I do a bit of research.
1: (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, that's a really interesting story. I think I did a lecture at the National Galleries in Scotland. That might be where I got it from. And I discussed it for the first time. So this is a massive... Do you want me to talk about this? Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, because this is a huge revelation in my life. Um, so one of the things I've done, uh, Grant, in the last year, because you know, I obviously listen to your podcasts, and I know you often ask us, what are we going to be doing next? And so the main thing I did in my pandemic year, apart from making pictures, was for some reason, I decided to write a book about my dark room and about 50 years in a dark room, and I finished that about eight weeks ago. And the end of the book is made up of two things. One is the closing of the dark room. And the the last exposure, um, and the other thing is uh, me discovering eighteen months ago that in this dark room, uh, this dark room was on the site where Joseph Cottle, who was the publisher of Lyrical Ballads, lived and did his activism and was a kind of hub for the Romantic movement when they came into Bristol. And so in this building, uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, who's a huge figure in my life, Coleridge more so than William Wordsworth would be sleeping and then heading out you know, across the River Severn to go up the Wye Valley to Tinter and Abbey and write some of these you know, great, great poems. So suddenly I found that the darkroom I started my life in was the home of this area of romanticism, which has been a huge influence on my life. And it probably take me the rest of my life to try and make sense of that. So you think it imbued
0: you with the spirit of romanticism? I
1: think photography is a medium of spirits and magic. And so I'm beginning to have to really think hard you know, did something happen? And I think I would be sensitive to this idea because I believe when I'm in the landscape, profound things happen to me and I make pictures about that. And so I don't see why the history of this building, where my first darkroom experiences took place, wasn't somehow influenced by this. And Coleridge, for example, was an important figure. You know, he hung out with Thomas Wedgwood when they were trying to make the first images we think of as photography. And I think all of this carries a lot of possibility, which I will spend quite a period of time thinking about and also talking to people about and researching and such like because
0: I think it's not random. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it's definitely intriguing. You left the dark room in 1973 at the age of 16 and you took yourself off to the Shetlands to take photographs. Why did you go there?
1: Um, I think what you've got to understand, uh, Grant, is in the early 70s, photography was commercial practice really and the only other branch of photography was kind of humanist documentary photography so you might be aware of people like Cartier-Bresson and a kind of social documentary photography so if you didn't want to be involved in commerce in photography you know industrial photography portraiture weddings and I'm 16, and and that kind of is the other other route that you know at that time. Subsequently, that changes. But at that point, you think, if I don't want to be that, you have to be a documentary photographer. So after my O-levels, the oil industry was about to be developed in Shetland, and I, because that's the way documentary practice works, you think – Okay, I'll take myself to Shetland and I'll just spend a summer there.
0: And you slept in local schools.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was, it, yeah, it was a very exciting moment. But, yeah. but well, I mean, when I, it's, like, <laughs> it's like the romanticism moment, though, isn't it? I decided that at 16, if I wanted to understand what photography might mean to me, yeah. the example, say, Paul Strand has gone to the Hebrides I might have known that. So you think, I think there's a story. It's in Shetland, the oil industry is coming, a whole way of life is going to be changed and I'll go there, and I'll just, you know, like documentary photographers do, I'll just pass through this place. It was a summer, so I was uh, the kind of council arranged that I could just turn up at schools and and, and sleep there and things like that. So it was an amazing uh, summer, and I took some photographs, some of which are okay. It meant I kind of thought this was where you should go, to the edge of almost nowhere, and just be there, and something will happen. So
0: that's broadly what the rest of my life's been like. Well, yes, it has. I mean, going to the edges of places. But Yeah. a year later, you're working with Shelter in Bristol taking these documentary style images.
1: No, that's when I come back because then the yeah. summer's over, I come back to Bristol, which is my home, you know, I have nowhere else to go. Yeah, because I, you know, believe photography has a political purpose and so on. I get involved with Shelter and I start just being sent around You know areas of bad housing to take photographs for them to use in exhibitions to explain the situation in Bristol and Gloucestershire. So I then do that.
0: Who who were your heroes then, Gary? What photographers were you uh, looking up to or trying to ape? Even
1: Uh, I don't really know because at that time I was trying to understand the world, and so I think um, when I was thinking, I I knew you would ask me questions like this uh, because I've written this book about the darkroom. You know, I've had to think about this, and the key thing is I was fortunate. That I lived close to Bristol in the mid 70s and Bristol then and perhaps Bristol today is beginning to be like this again. But at that time, Bristol was a really, really important place. And it had, you know, as it always has had, it had a really good music scene. I'm 15, 16, and it had Arnolfini Gallery. In. And Arnolfini Gallery in the mid 70s was probably one of the three most important art galleries in the country putting on the most important exhibition so it meant as a 15 16 year old i began to see the work of people using photography in a totally different way and it showed me how photography could exist in an art gallery context and could deal with ideas to do with land and nature and the environment and it changed my life and if i hadn't been fortunate enough to live in a city which had a very developed cultural scene i wouldn't have understood the potential of this medium that i'd
0: kind of become engaged with yeah because it's interesting gary because then you did change didn't you i mean you were doing this documentary style stuff and you started doing more nature land-based work your first show was in nottingham I i believe at the age of 18 and that went on to the serpentine gallery so why did you change your style
1: Mainly because I knew what I wanted to do was find what photography might be. I was committed to photography, and I've committed my life to photography. You know, and it's it's you know fifty odd years now. So I knew photography was a profound medium. But it, you know, when you're a teenager, it's trying to understand what could it be and where are your examples. And so at Arnold Feeney, I was seeing shows, these kind of land based shows. So I would have seen shows with Richard Long and Hamish Fulton, people like that. But equally. I was seeing European photographers who were using colour and who were working in a conceptual way. And so I would just go in, uh, like going into a bookshop and see these exhibitions, not knowing who these people were, but seeing photography being used in a completely new way and often colour being used for the first time. And so that would have influenced the change to the work which was called um, Sections of England, The Sea Horizon, which was basically two years photographing the view from my house across the Severn Estuary in a kind of conceptual, serial-based way, which was fed by seeing work of this type at Arnold Arnolfini. And I think the other critical thing is, again, because I've written this book, it really helps you understand why your life changes. And an art bookshop like Arnolfini in those days was the place where you could go and buy first-wave feminist books or go and hear people talk about that. So the whole kind of American and British feminist movement had a huge effect on me in suggesting a different world order in which a totally different attitude to nature exists than a, a male-dominated view. And so as a teenager, that was incredibly formative. So writers like Susan George, kind of one of my heroes, you said, who are my heroes? Well, like probably in my you know top of my triangle is the person who we refer to as the goddess, uh, Marina Warner. You know, I would have read Marina's books then, and then Marina you know, has been in my life ever since, and she's a close friend of mine now. And things like that you know, changed my life. And if I hadn't had access to things like that bookshop, going to hear uh, Adrian Rich talk at Arnolfini,
0: it kind of completely changed my life, like being in Bristol and punk happening. Then what's interesting, you say that, and I'm sure that's absolutely true, of course, but then you took yourself away from it all and you moved to Lincolnshire, as you already alluded to. I mean, that seems like a very brave thing to do. Yeah,
1: that's because you have to escape, isn't it? You know, if you have kind of evolved like this tradition that you said of medics and what have we, I needed to escape uh, this photographic context that i existed in 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 which a family business exists and i don't want anything to do with that so the only way you can you can um do that is by physically removing yourself which is what i chose to do which bristol was a very good place to be and photography color photography was beginning to happen at arnold feeney i showed it arnold feeney in 79 you know that was a very brave thing of them to do they gave me a a one-person show and paul graham spread across one of their slots, and neither of us ever had a, an exhibition before. But that reflected so well on the culture of Feeney that this kind of group of young people that kind of hung out there, they would look at their work. You know, I remember the curator coming to see me in my home, wanting to see what these pictures were, and then deciding he would show them. That was a, a remarkable thing. I, I hope it still happens. Yeah, and I went to Lincolnshire because, like many people, like many potters in the 70s, you go somewhere where it's cheap. And I wanted to go somewhere where I could buy a property with some land and kind of make a way of life. Mm. So I went there, and I think at the cost of my photography, probably. Really? You believe that? Uh, well, you know, Lincolnshire was a backwater then. I might suggest it still is. <laughs> so I went there, and then to survive there, it's very hard. And the landscape is really tough. Yeah, I almost felt I was starting again. And so I suppose Lincolnshire... The difficulty of Lincolnshire was probably caused me to remove the camera.
0: Well, I was going to ask. It was it was while you were there that you decided yeah, to stop yeah. using the camera.
1: Yeah, it was, but that was after a number of fallow years off the back of the Sea Horizons, which had been right. very successful. You know, exhibitions were going to happen. You know, in kind of Sheffield, in places like that, Lincoln. But then when they happened, they became the first cameraless photographs because mm. this this change uh, happened, and because I'd made this garden. You know, all the pictures I made in those five years all came out of plants that I'd cultivated and grown. So the move to try and make a way of life and make a garden caused the pictures to happen. So though it was fallow in a camera-based photography world, it enabled me to grow the materials from which I then made pictures. And was there anybody else
0: working in this way at the time? Did you have role models as such you could look at?
1: Uh, at that time, Grant, and you probably will remember this. I mean, uh, you know, by the time we get to the mid '80s, organizations like Common Ground, um, mm. and a kind of environmental charity, who who still still exists, but they their golden period was kind of mid '80s through to the early, well, I suppose mid '90s. But for about six years or so, they were one of the main kind of catalysts in environmental art based practice, and they worked a lot with the South Bank, the Arts Council, on big projects and. So, for example, when I was at Lincolnshire, one of the people I spent a lot of time with in the mid-80s was Andy Goldsworthy. Andy and I used to do a lot of projects together. He came to Lincolnshire, you know, he made work in my garden. I did an exhibition of his work in a chicken shed in my garden. Andy and I felt really close, you know, because we did feel we were kind of outsider figures. And Andy's relationship to photography was problematical because, you know, his photography wasn't great in those days, but it was critical in people being able to see the sculptures he made in the landscape and uh, subsequently Andy's photography works being you know it's been very very high quality uh you know i've i've memories of andy and i with our cibachromes his were being printed by charlie meacham i was printing mine and you know us kind of mounting them onto cardboard for exhibitions there's always been people around like this you know in my life really interesting people so andy was one at that time and the land art group you know like richard long and so on who who subsequently i got to know a bit in hamish you know these were all really important people to show you you could make a a way
0: in the art world if you worked in this way it's interesting gary because i mean you have alluded to this just now but you've obviously been hugely successful but it seems to me you don't quite fit in the photography world or the fine art world necessarily i mean you get compared to a country potter quite often and, and in fact you've compared yourself in this interview and i was intrigued to see edmund duval writing an intro to the book I mean I know he's not a country potter but I mean you've described yourself as a peripheral figure is that really how you feel
1: uh no I feel like an edge player right so so my question is where's the center and I think the center is on the edge But just think of the group of land artists for example you know Andy has always been on the edge you know he's up mm. in Dumfriesshire David Nash is on the edge he's in Blonaffiston Diniog you know Hamish is in a village somewhere near Canterbury, Richard Long was in a village outside of Bristol. These kind of older practitioners showed me that you could be wherever you needed to be. And, you know, I needed to be where I could make my pictures, and the art world's not there, the art world's somewhere else. Mm. I don't think I'm a peripheral figure in that. I don't think it's the sense you meant, but I've not chosen to put myself in the environments where they think they're setting the agenda, because I think their agenda is probably not the one that I'm interested in. Right. And I think if you have a vision as to what art is and what you want to make, uh, you've got to stay true to that. And over time, people will gravitate towards it and they'll gravitate away from it and then as years pass, there's a kind of accumulated density of activity, then you become a centre of some kind, of a certain kind of practice, and then that becomes other, important to other people who want examples of people who have chosen not to conform or play the game in the way that it's imagined, it's meant to be played.
0: Your work, it moved on in 1992 again, didn't it? You didn't do so much plant stuff, you started experimenting with glass. Why was that?
1: Well... So I've been working like this since 85. You know, the last exposures were probably made at the end of 2020. So it's a long time. The work's evolved in all kinds of ways. But the central thing is a beam of light, the cyprochrome paper and the chemistry. And then because it's a slow accumulative practice I have, I decided I'd work the plant material to all the places I could take it at that point. And so I had to decide to put that down and find a new material uh, to become the intermediary and i decided that uh, uh liquids or gas or or fire or smoke more elemental things i wanted to work with so i i began experimenting in the dark room as to how could i work with these materials and uh, it just happened that liquids contained in vessels of glass became a viable means and that's still the method i used right to to the end and then i could spend years and decades exploring this material in a way that the country... I mean, the country potter is so important. I think I'm happy with country potter, uh, but I don't, I don't know that so many potters would be happy with it now. But that might change. It might come back. The country potter is, should not be viewed as a derogatory uh, term. What I, I think it means to me is it's a kind of commitment to materials in place. Yes,
0: because you have this fascination with craft. I mean, you curated a show at the Craft Study Centre in Farnham, for instance, that included work of Richard Batum, the, the the potter, Robin Tanner the etcher. You obviously identify with makers.
1: I do, yeah, because they're heroes to me. So when you ask me that question, my heroes are people like that. Uh and I knew that from an early age. So Robin Tanner was like So this is a really interesting statement. So Robin Tanner was as important to me as
0: Polystyrene. Right. <laughs> Those are two you don't normally get in the yeah, same sentence. Yeah, so that be should be the front of Grass <laughs> magazine
1: or the enemy if it hadn't stopped publishing. Uh, so I remember, you know, probably within a year seeing Polystyrene who I think was a force of nature. And I became aware of Robin Tanner through the Quakers and the peace movement. So, as a kind of teenager, Robin Tanner was this remarkable elderly man who had this ability to talk the truth about the way we had to change the world. So, I knew Robin Tanner like that. And then I knew of Robin Tanner as the printmaker. And then I knew Robin Tanner. By going to the Holborn Museum, which was in the basement, uh, the Kral Study Centre, which was in the basement of the Holborn Museum in Bath. Right. And being aware of this guy having collected all this remarkable material from his friends, which became the beginning of the Kral Study Centre. So Robin Tanner, I met as a teenager, and he was like an incredibly powerful figure. And then Richard Batterham, I met perhaps in the last 15 or 20 years, and he kind of embodied another kind of way of life, which was the kind of life I've always been drawn to. So he still is a heroic figure to me. And as I kind of get to this point in my life, when all kinds of other possibilities come, this year I, I was asked if I would write an essay about Richard Batram for his exhibition, which is going to be at the VNA and a in uh, November, December time, uh, for the, the publication which Thames & Hudson are meant to be Publishing And Tanya Harrod asked me if I would write an essay about Richard Batram. And I think to myself, wow, this is like, you know, you've arrived uh, <laughs> in, in the land of the gods, where Tanya Harrod, goddesses, says, Gary, you know, you're the person to write about why Richard Batram embodies all of these things, uh, which you believe, because people need to know that. And I wish I could cite an example like that, which was a photographic practitioner, but they just don't seem to live the life. And so many craftspeople have always done that, and that's why they became my
0: community. Because you're a collector as well, Gary, right? I mean, in the foreword to your latest book, Edmund Duval writes that collecting is a way of understanding the world and adds that he thinks your collections are a way of arranging your thoughts. Is that true, do you think?
1: I think as the opportunity Presented itself for me to choose to collect the work of other people. I am only here because people collect my work. And, you know, I've made a living as an artist since the mid 90s. And that's an incredibly privileged position to be in. And then when that opportunity comes to collect other people's work, which you can't believe you'd ever have in your life, that's something I've chosen to do. So, for example, Richard and I have a very large collection of his work. And it kind of is fundamental to the shape of my life living with these things. Yeah, I don't know. It's when other people come and see the things I've collected. They say things like Edmund said, Sarah Griffin came a few weeks ago in, who's a big collector of ceramics. Yeah, yeah. And so she came and saw the things I had. And you know, she was like somebody who really understood what a collection of work this was. She didn't make you an offer then. Uh, well she's I trying to she persuade me. <laughs> She's trying to persuade me to write the Richard Batterham essay. Oh, there you go. But it's just wonderful to be in the company of somebody who understands the things that you've placed value on. Because most people who come here look at all these and think, gosh, this is a lot of pots. What is all of this? Uh, I'm happy to call these people potters. Uh, Richard Batram has a strong view. He, you know, he doesn't like to be called a ceramicist. He would say he's a potter. And I'm, I'm happy with that. But I quite like the fact I have Richard Batram's work and, say, Sven Bayer's work. And I have Edmund's work, Edmund de work, and they're all important people to me. But I'm aware that within that community, there's a huge division.
0: They're quite different, aren't they, between yeah. Richard and Edmund? Yeah, yeah, a, and, and they have chasm. strong views. And so I yeah. I
1: really like the fact they can both exist in my world, mm. and I can be a friend of Sven Baer and of Edmund. And perhaps they might realize they're much more of a family than than their squabbling (laughs) suggests.
0: Well, uh, more recently, you've expanded your practice. There have been these rugs and tapestries for the Dovecot in Edinburgh. How did that come about?
1: Well, that all comes from this craft space, which is, I guess, why we're talking, isn't it? Because it's because I live on Dartmoor. I live half an hour from Dartington. So if you go to Dartington, one of the great pieces of art on public display in Britain is Elizabeth Peacock's banners that hang in the Great Hall At Dartington. So all the years I've lived in Devon, these have been part of my life, whether it's just going to look at them or being there for a concert and sitting listening to music with these banners hanging in this wonderful building. So this kind of enigmatic figure, Elizabeth Peacock, I got more and more drawn to, wanting to understand who she was and how could she have made these pieces. Tanya Harrod, I've had interesting conversations with about this because it's so hard to understand how she conceived of these pieces. And you know, did she have knowledge of what was happening in the Bauhaus then? Probably not. And they so much of the quality of this work is of the quality of the work that people were making there at the same time. So Elizabeth Peacock was my interest. And so I was beginning to develop an idea of an exhibition around Elizabeth Peacock. And I'm not kind of quite sure how this happened. But Simon Olding at Craft Study Center got involved with the idea of it because he had the archive. And David Weir, who was running Dovecot, right. somehow got drawn in. And I think that was because I show with Ingleby Gallery in Edinburgh and he'd known my work from the many shows I've done there over the years. And somehow I used to go and visit Dovecot. That's what happened. I used to go whenever I was up for a show with Ingleby, I would always go to Dovecot. And I was a big fan of Dovecot. And I was aware when I went there that no other artist would go around to Dovecold. But for me, it was like one of the places I had to go because something special happens there, mm. making these tapestries. It is an extraordinary place. It is, yeah. So I think I got to know David through that at some openings and so on. And somehow he got drawn into the project. So we had an idea of a project which was Dartington Craft Study Centre and Dovecot. It would be an exhibition. And then the tapestry developed out of that. The idea of working with Dovecot on a tapestry, which I was very interested to do. Right. So I began with uh, David discussing that and then the idea of making rugs and it all just kind of evolved. But Elizabeth Peacock was the key
0: there you go. figure.
1: But for Elizabeth Peacock, it probably wouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah. Well, I was not expecting Elizabeth Peacock to be in that story, but there you go. I mean, is it a strange sensation watching another maker translate your work? Well, I
1: think since 2009, when I knew I had to change my practice because the Chrome was going to be gone, I had to decide that the photographic exposures had to exist in another way in the world. So I began to understand that the piece of paper that I made the image on in the darkroom was the exposure, and then it was interpreted again, in another way. So since 2009, I began working with a guy called John Bodkin, and he and I have developed a kind of hybrid way of colour printing from a Cibachrome exposure into a digital colour space. And that's really all the work I've exhibited probably for the last 20... Well, since 2009, so for the last 15 years or so. So really the work people know of mine are broadly these prints made from the exposures. So that kind of method of working... Was not so different than trying to figure out how I might take an exposure and conceive of how it could work as a
0: tapestry or as a rug. That's a curious sensation being able to walk on a piece of your work
1: yeah yeah, 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 and you because you've done your research, you've perhaps watched the film which Dove got made where might have done where Dennis, <laughs> who made one of the early rugs, described me walking into the uh workshop and the rug was on the floor. I took my shoes off and walked on it. And it was an incredibly amazing experience uh, to enter the black space of this rug with this glowing yellow circle in the middle. Yeah, it was an amazing uh, experience. And I always see the rugs as being on the floor, whereas collectors tend to put them on the wall. But they should really be on the floor. Uh, just that you asked me about heroes, most of my heroes are women. So they're goddesses, not heroines. But Winifred Nicholson is a huge figure for me. And I did a show at Dovecot, which was me and Winifred Nicholson. And we showed the rugs. The tapestry hadn't been made then. And my pictures and Winifred's paintings and her rag rugs she was having made up in Cumbria.
0: So that was a wonderful exhibition to do. There have been some intriguing collaborations. You've made a film working with a cellist, Oliver Goates, best known for his work with Radiohead at the V&A. And there's also a project with the poet Alice Oswald, I mean, would these projects have ever happened had Cibachrome papers not been available? No, yeah. no,
1: no, no. So, what's wonderful about the end of a material is if you have a body of work, which I have, fortunately, because it happened towards the end of my career, not at the beginning. Um, and I so feel for people that have never been able to work with Cibachrome. You know, young people who talk to me. Mm. So, I'm really grateful to have had the the Cibachrome life. But um, to know that you can begin to make sense of the body of work and collaborate with other people, and bring it into the world in different ways is a wonderful thing. And, and if I was still in the darkroom all the time, this wouldn't happen. I view this as a very positive thing, whereas I think many people, when their material was over... Would probably go into quite a dark place. It's a notion of that old
0: cliche of restraint encouraging creativity, right?
1: Yeah, and also just the notion that together we can make something bigger. And I think, you know, a dark room life and a studio life is a solitary life. And if you have a body of pictures and a body of ideas and a sense of what you want to do and you can find the right people, I think, you know, the collective can make something so much bigger. And so working with Oliver Coates and other musicians and trying to develop, um, kind of performance with Oliver Coates when we began it's obviously been rubbish with the pandemic but we did the V&A that was the first time we did the film last evenings. but our our kind of hope was that we would develop this as a film and music, and it would go to pop festivals and we would stage it to large audiences, you know, the opposite of me doing a show in a private gallery. And I still hope we'll do that, you know, whenever we're allowed to.
0: It's going to happen soon, Gary. I can feel it. It's going to happen. Yeah,
1: yeah. But we've got to somehow get the momentum. We've got to convince that, you know, Glastonbury give a big stage for this, not one of the backfields. And then we get Oliver and his crew and we get the film running on a good projection facility in an open crowd, not in a tent. And we really, you know... We really make something special happen. And that's what you should be doing in your latter years. And that's really exciting. You know, I really hope that chance comes again because it's going to take a while for us to build up our energy to push things and for venues, whether it's art gallery venues or for festival venues, to have confidence to push things. It's not going to be easy. They're just going to consolidate around established names and uh, what have we because, you know, economics means they need to. Yeah.
0: Well, Gary, our hour is up. You've heard this podcast before, obviously. So um, the final question is generally plans for the future. But we kind of know you've written this book. When is it going to be published?
1: Yeah. uh, Okay. so the book's been read by a number of people and it's being presented to uh, an agent. So I'm really hoping that that develops. But it can have a life in the art gallery publishing world if that's necessary. But the reason I wrote the book broadly when the year came, the pandemic year came, was I was about to get an honorary fellowship at the Bodleian Library and that all froze because of the pandemic so i thought and that was going to be about my dark room that would be what my fellowship would be about so i thought i would begin to write this book and it would become the foundation for the fellowship and and that that's what's happened so in the autumn of this year 2021 i'll i'll begin a two year Fellowship at the Bodleian Library, which will look at my darkroom and darkrooms as cultural sites. And over two academic years, I'll do a series of lectures about this subject. So the darkroom book will get published into that context, but hopefully not just within an art gallery context, but within a broader publishing context. So
0: that's a collaborative project as well, you know, and how wonderful that that is. Well, it sounds very exciting. I look forward to it Gary, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, well done, Grant, and continue
0: the podcasts. Thank you very much. I will. Big love. And to discover more about Gary's work, go to garyfabianmiller.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. Just so you know, I've introduced a new tier. So now for only £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.